So usually when I read think tank articles about China, the first thing I do is scan through citations and try to understand how many Chinese sources are getting cited. And I usually get very annoyed with a lot of congressional and think tank reports because most of them maybe cite one Chosher article, but Emily Dillon reports at Horizon Advisory are chock full of them. Emily, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thank you for having me on. Can you talk a little bit about your process of finding interesting papers? I'm curious if you have found any colorful writers in this universe um, who you follow on a regular basis. So much of the writing is colorful. So we vet all of our major sources by authoritativeness. So looking at the publisher or the affiliation of the writer or what their past history is. But we also do just a fair amount of looking around in social media or in self-posted blog posts. And those are the really fun ones because you get to all the conspiracy theories. So yes, they're absolutely like the fun strategy writers who are excellent writers and think about things in an entirely new way. But also you get the really fun conspiracy theory about the U.S. being run by aliens. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. The... This is the sort of thing I, I spend more of my time on, on China Talk, the newsletter, which everyone should subscribe to at chinatalk.substack.com, looking at more of the casual writing and blog posts and WeChat posts and gong gong hao and whatever. But good to know that there's also folks with flair in the, in the academic community as well. Do you, you want to shout out any people in particular? Oh, absolutely. I'm now forgetting the name, but there's one writer in particular, and I'll just res- describe like my favorite thing. Okay. And it's this chapter in an anthology of economist writings. And it's about the third world war that's going to happen in Europe. And pretty much it paints a world where there are three possible outcomes. The Europe sides with the United States and there's a battle to the end between them and China, okay. us and China. Plausible. Plausible. Not that likely. <laughs> Europe is neutral, in which case China's scale allows it to beat the United States but it's still a battle, or Europe goes to China and it's a landslide. Sure, why not? But he also introduces this idea, which you find like elsewhere in Chinese discourse, but perhaps not as like explicitly, of the real versus the virtual economy. And the idea that the reason empires in the past have failed is that they've allowed their virtual economy to outstrip their real economy. It's built on really very fundamental socialist thinking, and it involves... False, false commodities. So it's built on the whole political economy theory, but it's taken to a much more colorful extreme. And it's also you know, dumbed down, so I can understand it, which I can't <laughs> with a lot of the political economy writings. And you know, he walks you through all the empires of the past and how it is that their virtual economies have outstripped their physical ones and how they crumble as a result of that. And then he goes to the US and we are absolutely at that tipping point. And he says, but don't worry, China is not going to let this happen because we're not going to let our capitalist systems run away with us and therefore we'll maintain the balance. And I know we're going to talk about this later, but kind of squares the circle with the, the idea that we're also entering this new revolution in which because of the overlap between information technology systems and the real world, like as with the Internet of Things, mm. you can actually have this dual flow or balance between the real and the virtual economy so everything works out and so whoever controls this one is not going to fall apart as an empire great good to know so let's come to this this piece which you recently wrote about the chinese innovation strategy and how it compares to what the u.s is doing 
So you wrote that China and the U.S. both see science and technology as an extraordinarily important strategic component to uh, today's contest. But you write that they disagree over what it really takes to gain the upper hand in this situation. So the discourse in the U.S. revolves around pioneering basic research. But by contrast, China prioritizes applications. Beijing's strategic discourse and research allocations focus on deploying rather than developing cutting-edge capabilities. So this research is probably what drove everything, or it's the basis of really everything we're doing now. Nate, my colleague, and I, we were sitting around, and we had these massive databases of Chinese science and technology resource allocations, so funding, and also prizes given out for advances in science and technology. And throughout all of these, we saw this tremendous imbalance between the resources and the prioritization that was going to applications as opposed to basic research, and something that was entirely at odds with what would be the equivalent in the U.S. system. And this didn't make sense to us. And it particularly didn't make sense in light of what we talk about in the U.S. as this Chinese push for indigenous innovation and for catching up in basic science and technology. If they really wanted that, why was that not where the money was going? And so then we read a lot. And what we found as we did this was a discourse about how the current international system changes what competition in science and technology is and how you can win that competition. And there are two key parts. The first is that we're in this globalized environment where information is largely open and flows across borders. And because of that, the advances in science and technology are so much easier for a country to claim than they have ever been before or to a country, for a country to access internationally. And so that lowers both the cost and the time necessary to get what's at the cutting edge. And the caveat, the, the corollary here is that it is very expensive to invest in basic research and development. And it's very risky because you don't know what's going to work. Sure. Whereas if you obtain something that's already developed or, in the, or really close to reaching maturity... That's cheaper. That's low risk. But still, even accepting that, there's a lag. And in a typical science and technology contest, that still doesn't let you win the race. It lets you get to the end more cheaply, but someone else is still going to beat you. The second beat, which is what distinguishes today's contest um, in what we read from the Chinese side, is what matters in terms of the end goal. And the argument is that what matters today is the applications of science and technology is the sort of networks you build with it. For example, your ability to deploy, to use a now trope and probably, well, much discussed subject like telecommunications. It's not that you got the patent. It's that you got its application internationally. And to do that, it's what matters is capturing scale and being able to build and deploy. And so if that's what you're going for. It's okay to have this slight lag in when you get the patent and when you get the really cutting edge, as long as you can apply it to scale to the most people efficiently. And so the Chinese orientation appears to be focusing on that rather than on the basic R&D, which creates this tremendous asymmetry vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and really vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., the entire global system, because there's just a different competition underway. And that absolutely changes how the U.S. can or should respond to the extent that this is a scientific and technological contest. Because it's not a matter of just pouring resources into basic research. It's about competing for applications. So th th this idea of why buy when you can rent makes a lot of sense. Is Chuck Schumer pouring $100 billion down the drain trying to boost NSF funding to do this sort of basic research only for it to um, show up in Chinese companies two, two to three years later? Yes. 
And that's what we've seen. And that's the crazy thing, is the U.S. says there is this contest and we need to invest in science and technology because it's, we're competing against China. And what they don't say is, how does China compete? And what are our resources actually going to fuel to the extent that we're benchmarking against a competitor? And are they, in fact, just going to fuel our competitor? Yeah. I still want the future to come faster. And it's, I think this is like the only nice thing to come out of the U.S.-China tech war is increasing funding for, for this sort of stuff. But I, I take your premise at a certain level. I still um, write on a typewriter, so that might be the problem here. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Why don't you sketch out what investing in applications would look like in the U.S. context? Because I think the sort of layman's take is this is picking winners and losers and turning Verizon into Huawei somehow and just doing sorts of things which aren't necessarily all that um, comfortable or compatible with the way that the U.S. has done industrial policy over the past 50 years. Yeah, that's a really good point. There are two ways to frame this. The first is that already the U.S. R&D money goes to various tiers on the readiness scale. And so part of it is just shifting it to more mature research. Mm -hmm. But... Okay, so I care about the most boring things in the world. The list of things I'm passionate about, other than like typewriters, is probably infrastructure and logistics. Great. And the core of this is like the prime manifestation of what it means to invest in applications is to invest in infrastructure. For example, in telecommunications infrastructure. We're so busy talking about who's going to capture the cutting edge research on 5G that we're not talking about our ability to actually develop 5G systems, which require a mass infrastructure of base stations. And do we even have 4G across the U.S. right now? No. How is that possibly going to happen? Sure. And how do we actually compete in not only 5G, but in the entire ecosystem of technologies built on 5G if we can't lay out a scaled telecommunications infrastructure across the country? And then the same story holds for self-driving vehicles or electric vehicles. What about the charging stations? What about the actual abilities to have the networks on which all of these things can operate? And interestingly, so there's a big push in Chinese discourse right now that dates back to 2018, but that's been accelerated with their COVID recovery investment for new infrastructures, putting that in quotes because it's a term used. And those refer to the infrastructure of, if you will, an Internet of Things ecosystem. So it's data centers, it's telecommunications base stations, it's UHV, it's electric vehicle charging stations. And these are like the really boring things, but that's what this physical foundation is. And what does it mean to have the cutting edge of like cloud storage technologies if you don't have the data centers in which you store them? Sure. It's interesting, this dynamic, because I've come across and translated a handful of commentaries from anonymous senior Chinese scientists who are not particularly happy with this. There's clearly a, a constituency out there which wants to compete and have a really cool new like Large Hadron Collider or just do the real basic research that ends up winning Nobel Prizes. But at the same time, there's an understanding in the government that if you want to compete on a global scale in the way that Xi Jinping defines it, then doing that sort of investing in that sort of scientific research ecosystem is not necessarily going to get you there. Exactly. It's like you take a fine art painter and you say, actually, it's going to be a lot more useful for you to paint a lot of houses. And that's maybe not what they want to be doing when they want to be doing the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. Let's go a little deeper into this network 
idea. You write that in this context, innovation is not about having the best technology first. It's about having technology sufficient to support a competitive network and then extending that network broadly while attracting users. This game plays well to Beijing's enduring strengths, its scope, its scale, and its centralization. So where does this work and where are the few places that it doesn't? This fundamental argument is built on the idea of network effects. When you're building a network, that network becomes more valuable with every individual that joins. And so the contest becomes one of size. If you're picking between two social media applications, one might have a much better user interface, but that doesn't matter if one of them has more users. You're going to go to the one that's the larger community. And that's the case for a lot of the fundamental technologies that are going to define the rules of our emerging world. And it's also the same type of thinking applies to the data that supports those. The system that has the greatest data is also going to be the one that's probably more competitive. And those are things in which China can compete not only because of the sheer number of people in China, but because of the ability to control those users and their information, to localize data in China, to make sure the Chinese users are not on Facebook, that they're using Alibaba, not Amazon, whatever that is. So we get this asymmetric environment in which, for these networks, what they're competing for is size and users and information. And China is a huge chunk of that. And China can ensure that its networks have Chinese users and information. And that means that they have this de facto advantage. What's this idea of one-sided dependence? There is, okay, fundamentally, one-sided dependence is the idea that we might enter into a system where, in the U.S.-China context, what this is, we might enter into a system in which we depend on China, but China does not depend on us. Or more realistically, we are relatively dependent on China, and China is relatively independent of us, because Mm -hmm. it's really just all about the relative relationship. And that's encoded in Chinese strategic theory as an ambition. Um, And this is decades in the making. Exactly. There's this strategic theory called Two Markets, Two Resources that dates back to the 1980s. It's actually like the theory that undergirds the whole go-out national strategy. We can. There are all sorts of political reasons that it's not necessarily cited as such, but it is. And the idea of two markets and two resources is that there's this distinction between the domestic market and the international one, and domestic resources and foreign resources. And you want to relatively protect and insulate your own resources and markets while penetrating and being able to take advantage of and also to secure influence in foreign resources and foreign markets. This is particularly tangible and obvious in the case of like mineral resources. So the sort of inputs of relatively limited supply that are really necessary for emerging industries. China has a very careful system built to protect its own mineral resource reserves, to control their export, and also to determine how it is that they are mined and processed and by whom. Mm -hmm. At the same time, China invests internationally in consolidated sources of these resources of limited supply. So, for example, into cobalt in the DRC. And those investments are not just designed to meet some domestic need or for immediate profit. What they're designed to do is grant China relative influence over the supply of and therefore the market and prices of these goods. So to create a world where the market system for cobalt and therefore for the industries built on top of cobalt 
depend on China while China maintains its own relative independence. Sure. But there are kind of points which this model hasn't been built out currently, like for semiconductors, which is why you see Xi Jinping spending a trillion and a half to close those loops and, and change the relative balance. To a degree. But actually, the semiconductor example is a great one. So semiconductors have this whole industry chain, right, from upstream to downstream in terms of the sophistication of the technology necessary. China does have key nodes in particularly the upstream of that industry chain. Sure. So the semiconductor industry does rely on China. And at the lowest levels, it does, which are, of course, what everything's built on top of. And yes, China relies on the downstream, so the highest, the most advanced levels on the rest of the world. But at the very least, it's a balanced relationship. And in some Chinese texts, you actually see the argument that it is more strategically valuable to a certain extent to have that low level because everything is built on that, whereas it's only the high-end applications that are derived from the top. So you have this early choke note, if you will. Situate China standards 2035 in this. So this is a plan that was actually supposed to, projected to come out this year and hasn't, whether that's because of COVID or because there actually was a U.S. response to it or for some other political reason or whether it still will is uncertain. Let's talk about, let's talk about maybe before we get into that, like U.S. responses to Chinese plans. Just because one of my half-baked theories is that had a thousand talents, had uh, Made in China 2025 not sounded so catchy in English it wouldn't have gotten nearly as much play and have engendered nearly as much of a response. If I had been the 863 program. Because well, no one knows what the 863 program is, and it's just as explicit. Well, as... Torch sounds scary. That's um, fair. That's but, fair. Um, what would do, there's the Two Machines Special Project. Like, what are you going to do about the Two Machines Special Project? Like, you can't... There's no puns. There's no op-ed headline to, to with that phrase in it. Trust me, I've tried to place that op-ed, and no one wanted it. <laughs> just... My question is a a little flippant, but there's an interesting broader thing of, on the one hand, she, just the way the Chinese system works is like, you can't not publish the plan and expect like an enormous bureaucracy, which runs a a billion and a half people to try to execute on it. So there's a way in which like, if you want to do these things, you actually have to be very explicit about it in order to get the local and provincial level governments to do what you want them to do. Like you can't secretly try to create your own semiconductor supply chain or what have you. But at the same time, I feel like there was a bit of a middle ground somewhere that she could have done to slow roll this or talk a little less aggressively because just doing the World Economic Forum speech isn't enough. Not many people speak Chinese, but enough speak Chinese to process the kind of narrative that you and others have been writing about for years now. Yeah, and I don't think that question is flippant at all. Because if you look at the names of these plans and the grow, like those mirror the growing aggressiveness or assertiveness or whatever you want to call it of China on the world stage. And so the decision to say we're going to put out a plan called Made in China 2025 is a decision to say we're going to claim this posture internationally and we're going to be unapologetic about it. And in this case, yes, it was a gamble about the relative, you know, closed eyes in the U.S. that maybe was a little... There's a term for overconfident, that would be the term for this. But at the same time, it's not that risky a gamble because as we saw, China just, you know, stopped, pretended to stop using that plan's name for a little while and everyone bought it and was like, oh yeah, we succeeded. They ended Made in China 2025 when it wasn't ended at all. It was just like a little hush in the English language. And it's also true that there's been such explicit Chinese language for decades about all of these ambitions 
and no one's caught on. And so there's every reason to think you can get away with Made in China 2025. I think there are broader forces at work which have led to the, you know, ZTE, Huawei, and now the U.S. trying to spend billions of dollars to address these questions. But I think it was one of the factors, clearly, to get people's attentions focused on this, is the name and the ambitions that were laid out, what was it, back in 2015. And it does strike me as a bit of a a, a misplay on their part. On the one hand, it's something that certainly energizes your your bummed out scientific science researcher who doesn't get to paint the Sistine Chapel, but is, is stuck painting cars. But at the same time, there clearly was a, a, a real response in the West over the past five years, which has now contributed to the situation that we're in today. Absolutely. And you can get a rise out of someone if you say this company is part of Made in China 2025 that you can't if you say they're part of the Strategic Emerging Industries Initiative, even if those really occupy such a similar place sure. and, set of amb- and re- represent such a similar set of ambitions. Please subscribe to China Talk at glow.fm slash China Talk. Also, hire me, preferably full-time, but consulting gigs work too. My email is in the show notes. Thanks so much. So let's come back to uh, China Standards 2035. What are standards? uh, Why do they matter? And what is uh, China's plan for them? Standards are the rules of the world. And in this case, technical standards are the rules that govern international technology. So that really set the rules of the world. We can go back to that. And China has been focused and in an unprecedented way on setting international standards since uh, at the very, you know, the 1900s, late 1900s, obviously, but with as a national strategy since 2001, shortly after they entered the World Trade Organization. And you know, the first thing to note here is that this is really very unique to China. Historically speaking, standard setting and standard setting organizations have been cooperative processes and fora. This is something that companies did together not to compete, but so they could ensure interoperability uh, among their various niches or worlds. But from a strategic perspective, China clearly saw that in setting standards, you get tremendous strategic value. There are automatic economic returns, and those are huge, but there's also just the ability to write the rules, which means that you can influence how things work. And that, again, I'm going to go to telecommunications as an example at the risk of overusing this one, but 5G is a technical standard. And so to a significant extent, the whole competition for 5G is a competition to ensure that one player's or a certain set of patents and technologies become the ones that define 5G. (laughs) And China wants those to be its company's patents and technologies. And if that's the case, it means that China China is setting the rules of the road for the fifth generation of telecommunications. Its companies have an automatic advantage because they're the ones who have built their 5G systems on these technologies. And also... Chinese systems, so not just the telecommunications companies, are likely to could be com- more compatible with this, and therefore have an advantage in the applications built on five G. Sure, I doubt. I doubt the standards was as a benign thing as you laid out pre. I don't know twenty ten. I'm sure there's like historical stories where the U.S. has won market share or whatever because we've been able to bully our way around in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. But that said, I take your point, and it makes sense that this is now a uh, a field on which multinational companies, as well as the governments behind them, are trying to exert their 
respective wills. Yes, absolutely. And you know, when you look at the Chinese sources, they say the U.S. has made this much money off of having the standard for this, and we want that advantage. I guess the thing I'm most referring to when I say it's benign is that there's been the way technology has worked. We didn't have really like universal providers in a lot of these domains before. So what you had was the U.S. telecommunications company that had won whatever thing for its area and the German one. And it was obvious that it was going to be Deutsche Telekom in Germany and Verizon in the U.S. And so then they got together and they said, what's our standard going to be in the international organization so that we can be interoperable? But in a world where suddenly you have international or universal systems that's not necessarily the conversation anymore because you're not saying how do we patch together these undisputed niches where you're saying what's going to be the one thing. So you write that a logistics information system hardly sounds like the stuff of great power politics. It certainly does not sound like a bid to redefine global affairs. In fact, it sounds unfathomably boring. But it's important, according to Emily de la Briere. What is this and how does it apply to the themes you just laid out of going from a real to a virtual economy and this idea of leveraging standards and turning them into platforms? I love this one particular logistics information system as an example and a really relatively tangible one of everything that I talk about. The goal is for this to be like a super app of sorts, a one window platform for information on international logistics. And it's supposed to be multidimensional in terms of different infrastructure systems. So to cover land and air and sea and freight and post. Right now in its international manifestations, it's really mostly in the maritime domain. But there are dozens of international ports that connect to it. And Logging has partnerships with multinational companies as well as with international standard setting organizations and industry organizations, in particular the IPCSA, which is pretty much the industry association for port operators. And so the idea of Logging is that it connects to these companies and these infrastructures like ports and it aggregates their information on the movement of goods, the packing and unloading of goods, customs system, and ships and their backgrounds, and the personnel involved. And then it creates almost like a Facebook of sorts, this platform where you can find that information. And you can also use this foundational information layer to build applications on top of it. So systems for way bill processing, or you can access logistics softwares for a port. And this is tremendously useful because right now there is this information is siloed. There is no aggregated portal for all these different streams of largely incompatible information. And the other thing about logging is that it's also being advertised or presented as a technical standard for information logistics. And right now the standards aren't compatible with each other. So it does, it fills this incredible market gap. But the thing is that logging is controlled by China's Ministry of Transport. So you have these immense streams of information that are both commercially and militarily valuable and that are going to a Chinese government entity. And the other thing that logging could do is shape the information environment because companies or ports or users are going on here to see how goods are moving, to find a port logistics software, to process their customs paperwork. So what happens if 
the information on logging is influenced in such a way that it benefits China or Chinese players. If Chinese softwares are the ones that are suggested, the way Amazon suggests a product, and therefore they're the ones that are used regardless of any quality or security concerns. And what happens if the customs processes on logging, which create this great, super convenient integrated system, make it easier for certain players to transfer illicit or controlled substances? And what happens in a world where there's a confrontation and China wants to cut off supplies of, say, rare earths to another country, and that country's ports or the port shipping the rare earths use logging for their information? How many places have you gotten this iPad rejected from? I cannot count, actually. <laughs> Anybody listening, we have a report on logging that we're hoping to drop in the next week. So we're actively in the process of looking to place two op-eds on this subject right now. <laughs> also, if anyone wants to cover the report. We should have, we should have had you on. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have another. We'll, we'll do a full 45 minutes on it. Uh, don't. Oh, n- I could talk for hours about this. <laughs> So um, we talked a little bit about this. What is different about the world today versus 30 years ago? And what's special about China versus other middle-income countries that gives this whole prioritizing applications and standards and companies chance of working where sort of the playbook that a lot of other um, countries that have made it out of uh, middle-income to high-income status Uh, have followed doesn't really line up with what China is appearing to be doing right now. Yeah. So for the first half of that question, what's different is information technology. And then what that information technology brings about, like, say, globalization. What's different about China is size and centralization, but also the ability to take that information technology and to use it strategically. Whether that's in terms of maintaining an authoritarian system that, unlike authoritarian systems of the past, could potentially not be hugely expensive but instead end up making money, or in terms of projecting its power internationally. And both of those are fundamentally about similar things. They're about the idea that, and actually this is another particularity of China, it would be the military-civil fusion strategy. The idea of combining all these different strains, which for whatever reason in international relations have come to be seen as siloed or different, combining those into a vision of, forgive the phrase, comprehensive national power. And then based on that idea, looking around and saying, how can we project power through information technology systems or other unusual different forms of global presence that at the same time deliver commercial value and promise military utility. So at home, this could be the idea of a surveillance system that because it collects data on individuals can also be translated to, because I forgive so many of the phrases I'm using, (laughs) data is a new oil, whatever all that means, but therefore is actually valuable. Or this is the idea that if you have an international port logistics network across the world, I guess that's what international means, then that can be translated to influence across the world as as well as the commercial utility you get from collecting information. Let's talk a little bit more about civil civil military fusion, which is something that sounds very scary and something that I've seen a lot of Chinese writers be very proud of. But I am 
a bit of a skeptic about it, not from any informed opinion, but just from thinking about how bureaucratic and slow moving the Department of Defense is and imagining that in a Chinese context where the people who are within government working on these things are even the pay differential is even worse relative to what they could make in the private sector and a a coupled with state owned an ecosystem of state-owned enterprises, which are also, you know, pretty far from the cutting edge. And lastly, a a real private sector, which like really doesn't want to do any of this and has to be, I assume, drag kicking and screaming into, into cooperating on some of these projects. So I guess my question is like, how does this actually play out in context? Is this something that you can figure out from doing this sort of open source research that you're doing? And what are the kind of bumps and hiccups that you see Chinese writers talking about when looking at their views of how civil military fusion is actually going? So I think that there are two levels of analysis to the question. And the first one, and what I found find most compelling, is just the strategic orientation behind military civil fusion. The idea that you're fusing commercial and military resources and actors and positioning for the sake of a unified goal. Because that's just a different way of thinking about these things than what you see elsewhere. And that's huge. Because at least until recently, if not still, in the U.S. we have this idea that in the commercial world you cooperate internationally, in the military world you compete that you can be really good commercial friends with another country, even if you have this military snafu going on. Mm -hmm. But if you accept the fundamental strategic premise of military civil fusion, is that possible? Or is this player with whom you're holding hands on one side and fighting on the other actually fighting with you on both? So that, I think, is like just the first thing to wrap our heads around. And then there are the more granular tactical details of how military civil fusion works and whether technology is actually being shared perfectly between these different entities. And everything you said is accurate. Yes, technology sharing, data sharing, these are not just obvious things that happen easily and there are plenty of hiccups and bureaucracy is bureaucracy. Yes, you can also figure out to a non-trivial degree much of this with open source research. Shared laboratories are a good example of this. You can look through the Chinese R&D and S&T laboratory ecosystems and say, where do you have a laboratory that's jointly participated in by a commercial champion and a clearly military entity? And then what research is being done there? Mm -hmm. And you can map it out from a bottom-up way that way. And you get that these do exist and it's real. And I guess what I'd say for the mapping out is you pair that with what you can find on information sharing and the degree to which regulations to that end are actually being carried out. And yeah, so what you get is that it's real and in areas that are prioritized or easier, there absolutely is this happening. It's not happening across the board and it requires building an infrastructure that isn't in place entirely. Sure. What is prioritized and easy? So easy would be things that are like very specific and have very direct military utility. So I'm thinking right now about like explosives. There's a good case of a Chinese mining company that just did mining stuff. And then they come out of nowhere with this crazy missile, which is (laughs) so like exactly a little bit of a surprise, but it's explosive technology. And you can say, here's one specific company. We're going to turn that into one specific thing. So that's why I'd say it's easy there, I'm actually very curious about the nuclear dimension on all of this because it's definitely a priority. In theory, it's easy. It talks a lot about in the military civil fusion space, but this is an area where like my total lack of tech savvy gets in the way. Sure. And I'd say that another thing 
that is definitely prioritized is just information. So Beidou as a satellite system, the idea of using a commercial entity to collect global information and sense and then dock that into the military system. And that's probably the whole idea of like information warfare and competition for information is like the priority for Chinese military strategy. And Beidou is framed as like the commercial champion of MCF. So yeah, I'd put that at the top of the priority list. Sure. Let's talk about rare earths. I'm not going to make you explain what rare earths are. Where should I start? Thank goodness. Rare earths, China has a lot of them. The world needs them. You're hearing more and more talk on Capitol Hill about thinking about doing something about this. But in the meantime, or at least over the next few years, this is going to be a vulnerability. Do you have a sense of if and when this card is going to be played? So it has been played, first of all, just like yes, as important course. context vis-a-vis Japan in 2010 over the Shinkakus, which I just like, how is that not more present in the popular consciousness? Yeah. That was an insane move. It's interesting because the Russia-Ukraine oil thing really made people wake up hey. and this that this moment hasn't at all. I think the answer is that like you think, oh, it's just... There's stupid islands and the Japanese and the Chinese, they always hate each other. I saw a great graph today on Twitter. It was someone talking about like popular perceptions, national populations and their views of China. And like every country in the world (laughs) got 15% more angry at China and Japan didn't because they were were already at 93%. (laughs) It was literally exactly the same, which I thought was pretty perfect. I I assume that's why. And also 2010, China's growing at 10%. Like no one really wants to think about what. They're also the economy that's saving the world after the Great Recession. There's also just a lot of incentive in not thinking too hard about these sorts of questions way back then we have Jintao in power or whatever but uh, anyway back yeah to you. and you're like starting to get the south china sea thing but people are like confused at what it is in the south china sea they're supposed to care about yeah so that's just like a disarray yeah i buy that so yes it has been played but playing it in the u.s context with apple phones or whatever would be at a very different scale in the sort of global impact You've cited a handful of Chinese scholars, and I guess I think the Chinese government in one instance saying that this is something that may come to bear when it comes to U.S.-China trade negotiations and the trade war back in 2019 when it was really popping off. But maybe talk a little bit about how the Chinese government sees this asset which, as you write, has been it has been consciously developing as a strategic resource way back to, I think you had a citation from 1961. Yeah, there's a great line that China has been focused on rare earths since the very founding of the People's Republic of China. Yeah. And Beijing has, so China has like natural rare earths endowments that give it a fundamental advantage. But China has very intentionally also curated an advantage in the processing and the production of rare earths, as well as investments in international rare earth supplies. And this goes back to that two markets, two resources conversation, to the ability not just to have one's own resources, but to influence the world. And yes, there are Chinese sources during trade war frictions that say we would consider using this as coercive leverage in the case of international conflict. Will this ever come to pass? Unclear, because clearly... The ideal situation from a Chinese perspective is that remains this like lever of influence that shifts behavior, but that you never have to pull Yeah, because then you can shape things without entering into an actual conflict. But it's also worth noting that you have this whole new growing U.S. recognition of the rare earth imbalance and the rare earth threat, but in a way that risks not accounting for 
the nature of China's rare earth positioning mm. for the degree to which they invest in international sources, including in U.S. sources. So it's not enough to just say, oh, that facility or that reserve is not in China because it might be equally or nearly as influenced by China. And then the other thing is like the whole industry chain. Because it's not, rare earths are not just a question of the reserves. It's a question of the processing and the technology that's necessary for that and the equipment that's necessary for that. And so you get stories of, in theory, a U.S. investment in a source in the U.S. that's supposed to be an alternative to China, but they're importing all of their equipment from China. And so how much does that actually break dependence? Not so much. Sure. Which, you know promise for squaring the circle goes back to the question of how this could be used. And I think it's important to keep in mind that any rare earths leverage, like any leverage in the Chinese industry chain, could be used more subtly than just saying, we're breaking off exports. It could be this company is going to have a harder time getting the equipment they need. It could be something of just making things a little more difficult. And that allows all the subtlety without the conflict that might bring recognition and a wake-up call sure as an aside i feel really bad for inner mongolia just in terms of the <gasps> poor mongolians and they just want to herd their freaking cattle and sheep and well not really cattle they just want to herd their sheep and all of a sudden these giant like han-owned companies show up and are now drilling and ruining the grassland and yeah. i'm sure they're not getting any benefit from all the cobalt or whatever that's being pulled out of pulled out of there and the same thing thing goes with minorities in, in Sichuan province so yeah and they're polluting so much yeah because you have china which makes like all these claims to be supporting whatever environmental thing the world is now supporting but then it's like, oh that doesn't apply to inner mongolia or to xinjiang because if that just doesn't apply there oh wait we can have some real cheap rare earth processing so emily let's square the circle how does logging connect to rare earths here we go. There is a port in Malaysia that, do that docks into logging. And that port happens to be a stone's throw from this rare earths facility run by an Australian company in which the U.S. is currently investing as an alternative to Chinese sources of supply. So great that they're investing in it. Great that we're looking for alternative sources of supply. But the thing is that what this means is that China risks having better information on the rare earths that are going from this alternative source of supply to the U.S. than does the U.S. And the port on which that facility depends risks depending on China. Mm. So this is just like the classic example of us not understanding the extent or the nature of China's positioning and then investing in things that risk being counterproductive. So Emily, you've in the past hour laid out the maximalist version of what uh, threat in Chinese industrial policy has for the West. And my concern is that if this conception of Chinese intentions and ambitions is something that is being internalized more and more in Europe and the US, and I guess my concern is that I have zero faith in the U.S. in particular, but the West in general and coming up with a sort of smart way to do this, which does not entail just cutting off 
China whole hog from the global economy, having no Chinese nationals ever get a visa in the U.S. again, and a whole host of other kind of side effects of decoupling, which may on the one hand get at some of the concerns you're laying out, but also have real deleterious side effects, which go beyond industrial policy and will end up completely defining how the West relates to China for the next however long we have a Xi Jinping type leader in power. To what extent do you share this concern and how can you be hopeful that policymakers will not end up going down this sort of road? Oh, I absolutely share that concern, especially because the blunt, dumb version of this ends up being a bad thing for the U.S. as well. And I mean, that as well as not reacting could make us lose the contest currently underway. Sure. So one of my other fears here, right, and probably the thing that I'm most worried about is that the U.S. tries to do this alone and tries to take radical actions on its own or because it's acting so bluntly, pushes other countries away. Mm. So pushes Europe away. That writer I cited is right. The U.S. can't compete on its own in this. And so if that happens, it pushes Europe and the rest of the world toward China. The things that the U.S. can actually use as leverage right now, like advanced technology, China gets those from Europe. America can't rival the scale, and the battle's over, right? So the U.S. fundamentally, if it's going to win, needs to be working with its allies and partners, if there's any chance of winning this, and to do something together. And to the extent that we act bluntly and assume we can just decouple, which goes against everything that is true of the international system right now, to the extent that we do, that means we push them farther away. What we do need to do is strategically have a taxonomy of what is important and what is realistic in terms of protection, in terms of investing in alternatives. Because that's the other thing that happens if we just bluntly try to decouple. We don't invest in the alternatives. And we do what we're doing with Huawei right now, where we try to rip them out and say Huawei is bad, but we don't present a positive alternative. And that's like the perfect way to lose. So that's the other big risk in how we're going about it which comes to the fact that what you need is the strategic taxonomy of that takes into account what you can do and what you can't do, what's important and what isn't important, and defense and offense together, or positive and negative, or however you want to put that. And then you run up into the problem that the U.S. isn't good at strategy. And the U.S. has never been good at strategy. And the U.S. is particularly bad at strategy in a system like ours is right now, where there isn't an entity that's in charge of it. And instead, what you're supposed to have is a bunch of different players like working together to somehow formulate a logic that's going to comprehensively guide us somewhere. That's not going to happen. And they all have conflicting political intentions, bureaucratic intentions, different structures, different mandates. Until we're actively working with allies and partners and until we have a body that is small and flexible and superordinate and dedicated to this, we kind of risk having a snowball's chance. I have another question that's not related. The House Intelligence Committee came out with a report two days ago about the sort of state of the IC's uh, particularly open source Chinese analysis. And a lot of it was redacted, but basically it said, we're doing a really bad job and we need to scale this up. As a young person who uh, does this full time and who's interacted with that world, do you have a sense of where the IC is with this sort of thing? What do you think about this report and the issue more generally? I absolutely agree. What I do should not be different or should not be unique. And it, and it should not exist only outside of the government. The IC has so much information and there are like you know, very smart people looking at this information, but I worry it's the wrong stuff. 
Like, the U.S. system should know about logging, and it should have known about standards ambitions. But we still have a strategic framework for what information to collect and what information matters that's outdated for the current competition. So what, what, what is it? That focuses, for example, on what naval like, ships China is developing and where they're moving. I don't care about that if China has the fundamental architecture that watches and influence how ships move. And until you have, and I see that either in an ideal world is in an you know, iterative, living, breathing way, formulating what it collects based on Chinese strategic thinkings, or at the very least has gone through a renovation in terms of what it looks at and that accounts, for example, for military civil fusion or for commercial movements or for movements of capital that overlap with the military domain. Until you have that, you risk having a lot of information that's asking the wrong questions. And if you're asking the wrong questions, you don't get anywhere. Sure. And you're also training people up on things that aren't as important as these sorts of questions because you can spend your entire life looking at where cruisers are going and understand like the captain of this ship takes naps from 2 to 7 p.m. or whatever. But this sort of work, I think, is less concrete and I assume that is a difficulty for a bureaucracy trying to wrap their heads around um, these sort of like nation state level things, which it really hasn't had to do since uh, since 1989. And building back those sort of muscles and this sort of capability is something that more and more people seem to be aware of is an issue and hopefully is something that will change in the um, in the near future. Yeah. And of course, the other problem is just like the problem of classified information. There's so much out there in the open source, but if you have a clearance all you're looking at is the classified stuff and you think that's all that matters. And then you risk ignoring very compelling stuff that you see in the open source or you just have this overflow of information. Yeah. And there's a whole nother issue, of course, when it, of clearances. And I think this sort of thing, or understanding like Chinese civil military fusion, you can probably figure out while not having spent five, 10 years in China. As a U.S. national, you're not going to work in anything close enough to this to really gain all that much expertise by living in Beijing for five, 10 years. But if you're trying to understand trends on social media and it's February 2020 and all of a sudden people screaming about Li Wenliang and trying to figure out what exactly is happening in coronavirus, unless like it's like the analogy is like, all of a sudden, you're a Chinese person who speaks maybe pretty good English and has never spent time on Twitter and all of a sudden is told, figure out what Twitter is talking about today. You need someone who's lived and breathed this stuff and has spent all their spare time engaging with you know, Chinese pop culture and Chinese big celebrities and the equivalent of Chinese bloggers and, and, and what have you. And that sort of person has the, the background, which makes it near impossible for them to get a clearance to do this sort of work in the first place. Absolutely. Emily de la Briere, thanks so much for coming on China. Thank you so much for having me. Can't be fake, no game, no cake. They touch and put it